Okay, we are live. Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. Alhamdulillahi rabbil alameen. Wa salatu wa salamu ala rasulillah wa ala alihi wa sahbihi ajma'in. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh to all our viewers and guests. Uh, we are here live today with Ustad Muhammad Abdullah Artan discussing the history of Islam in the Horn of Africa or in East Africa. And we hope that this session and this discussion will hopefully shed light on a lot of things that many of us are not really aware of in terms of certain parts of Islamic history and especially in uh, in terms of what we're looking at today in terms of the uh, the oppression to our brothers and sisters in Palestine hopefully there will be some lessons that we can take from uh, this part of our history as well in order to give us optimism for what's happening in our current Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa Muhammad Wa alaikum assalam wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh to you brother Hisham and everybody of your listeners Jazakumullah khair and jazak for having me it's our pleasure and our, our honor to have you. Uh, I thought a good question to start off the discussion would be to define uh, what is the Horn of Africa? What is, is East Africa? Okay. Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. Alhamdulillah rabbil alameen. Salatu wa salamu ala nabiyyina Muhammadin wa ala alihi wa man tabu'ahum bihsanin ila yumidina ma'bad. Just to sort of quickly uh, situate everybody. Uh, the Horn of Africa, North East Africa, um, East Africa generally, Ard uh, al-Habasha in, in Islamic curriculum or Islamic uh, literature or Muslim literature, or um, part of Ard uh, al-Zanj or the Zunuj as is known as, mm-hmm. all fall in within the uh, modern geographical area, which is uh, East Africa proper, and that is mainly some parts of uh, Somalia. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Swahili coast, which is Kenya, Tanzania, um, uh, all the way going to a bit uh, uh, almost almost to South uh, South um, South Africa, and then you have got the uh, Horn of Africa, and Horn of Africa is basically uh, constitutes the modern states or uh, borders uh, the, the Ethiopian uh, or the Ethiopia modern day Ethiopia, mm-hmm. uh, Djibouti, Eritrea and modern-day Somaliland, uh, which is a northern tip of uh, modern-day Somalia, and uh, and obviously uh, the entire northern hemisphere of modern-day Somalia. So it's, it, that is known as Horn of Africa. And when the Muslims in the past, uh, in terms of geographical uh, literature, uh, especially mm-hmm. the early ones, like, you know, uh, Hamawi, uh, Yaqut al-Hamawi, and, 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 and how do you say it? Um, uh, uh, even earlier than those, mm-hmm. whenever they talk about Ard al-Habasha, and uh, when we look at in the Sirah and the Hadith of the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam, when we when when we see the majority of the Sahaba that were uh, situated in the time of the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam, the all these individuals tend to come out of what we now know as Northeast Africa. So that is mm-hmm. Ethiopia, uh, mm-hmm. modern day Ethiopia. Eritrea, Djibouti, and parts of uh, uh, northern uh, Somalia or Somaliland area. So that would be uh, the Ard al-Habasha proper. Uh, and, and so we, we have to sort of think and get an image of of that area when, we, when we're talking about Ard al-Habasha. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I see. That's, that's, that's very interesting. And yeah. uh, I guess the word Habasha... Abdul Habasha is, is familiar to most people who have read anything about the life of the Prophet and when it's taught I think it's roughly translated as Abyssinia mm-hmm. but am I right in saying that the land even in the earliest sources is referring to a larger land than just modern day Ethiopia 
So there is quite a lot of uh, uh, confusion around uh, mm -hmm. uh, ethnic ethnography and, and who's, who are the Habashis, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And then there is also a bit of confusion around the geography, right? Where is Ard al-Habasha? So mm -hmm. you've got a, a, a problem there in terms of when, uh, depending on whose literature you're reading uh, and, and, and what timeline uh, you're looking at, right? Mm -hmm. uh, however, modern scholarship uh, has somewhat now completely settled that when the Muslims of uh, uh, the first century, the second century Hijri were referring to Ard al-Habasha, they just generally meant people that uh, are modern day, that come from modern day uh, Northeast Africa. So what we mentioned earlier on, uh, Ethiopia proper, uh, Eritrea, Djibouti and Somaliland area. So that is right. sort of the, the main uh, crux of it. Uh, yeah. But it has always not been uh, the case that sometimes, you know, someone who uh, is from generally from Africa would have sometimes be considered as Habash, Habashi. Habashi. Uh, some, yeah, some, because, because he was black or she was black. So they tend to uh, uh, describe them as that. But uh, some, for the most part, they, they differentiated uh, the, the, um, the ethnicity of mm -hmm. peoples from Africa in, in terms of ge rough geographical area. So the Zenj would be classed as people that come from either East Africa and sometimes all the way from West Africa and that type mm -hmm. of thing, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and then later on, uh, a specific ethnographic terminology started being uh, introduced into the Islamic literature. So you've mm -hmm. got uh, uh, the, the, the Barabbas, for example, you know, the, the ones mm -hmm. that are uh, now modern, uh, sort of widely accepted are referred to uh, uh, Somalis when we talk about Northeast Africa. And then you have the Berberis that are from Maghrib, uh, which are all the way the other side of the continent, right? And so there is a lot of um, uh, reclassification and, and sort of uh, uh, re-studies uh, and, and trying to look at into the geographic, but generally we should be able to now uh, situate ourselves when we mention Habashis we are referring to people of Northeast Africa, yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay, Jamil. And is the first kind of the entrance of Islam into this region, the Horn of Africa, does that begin uh, with the emigration of the, uh, you know, small group of Muslims uh, to Ardul Habasha, to, to An-Najashi, the Negus, the ruler of Abyssinia at the time, or is there something preceding that, or is there something post that? I think there is a conception that Islam enters Africa many centuries down the line, Mm -hmm. rather than early on. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. And that, it's uh, a lot of what I do is around that topic, uh, mm -hmm. sort of trying to uh, have a conversation around understanding the Islamic history, uh, mm -hmm. the way it should be properly understood. Mm -hmm. uh, and it is uh, anybody who studied a, a basic history would know that uh, uh, Islam uh, and, and, and the people of Northeast Africa mm -hmm are not mm -hmm. uh, new to the scene of the Arabian Peninsula and it's, mm -hmm. as well as his politics, as well as his uh, 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 religious uh, identities, right? So when yeah. you talk about the three uh, uh, Judeo-Christian uh, traditions as well as Islamo-Christian traditions, we already know that early on the people from Northeast Africa are already rooted in all these traditions early on, mm -hmm. right? And we know from uh, the time of uh, uh, slightly prior to the prophetic uh, mission, Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, or even his death, right? Mm -hmm. We know that uh, there is a lot of uh, 
conflict in terms of uh, political conflict and political, uh, 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 how do you say, uh, um, um, uh, unrest or, or, or wars that are going on. Uh, and, and these Northeast Africans are in the center of that, right? And so we know uh, uh, from the time of uh, the, the Himyari dynasty, right? We know from uh, the time of, so that everybody's listening kind of bit of uh, understands the, the context of it. The Himyari uh, dynasty were uh, uh, basically a, a, a dynasty or political power or polity that was based in uh, South uh, Yemen, right? Mm -hmm. and they were ruling South Yemen. They ruled a uh, majority uh, Christian population that were uh, somewhat Arab. Uh, mm -hmm. And the minority ruling class tend to be uh, people who are of Jewish background, right? Mm -hmm. And so, uh, and then they sort of uh, suppressed and they had a quite a horrible, uh, um, uh, how do you say, um, uh, oppressive uh, regime, right? Mm -hmm. uh, they were punished. And even uh, if you look at uh, Imam Abdurrahman Ibn Jozi's work on uh, when he talks about the the virtues of the black people or the people from uh, Africa and and, and mm -hmm. their their effect that they had on on the Arabian Peninsula and everything early on some of the uh, traditions that he reproduces from the companions is to say that the people that they actually uh, prior to that to the coming of the Prophet wasalam, people that were situated in the Himyar who were righteous, who were Christians, but also following on, on, on the path that was such as the Ashab al and stuff. They tend mm. to be people of Northeast Africa. The majority were uh, Northeast African, so people of Habashi descent who were prosecuted and punished and actually with their, sometimes even mentioned, with their prophets, right? And so, uh, and, and so you can already see from that scene that uh, not only did the, uh, uh, the political might of uh, the Aksumite Empire, which is the, the empire that ruled at the time, Ethiopia, mm -hmm. uh, Northeast Africa, as well as a portion of uh, um, Yemen, they, mm -hmm. they, they come there and they introduced into that scene to defend uh, the people that are being prosecuted, i.e. The, the, the Christians that were being prosecuted. And then it was a, it was a um, how do you say, it was a, uh, it was a mission designed to make sure that uh, uh, there is a, a sort of a geopolitical warfare going on between the Roman uh, Empire, uh, the Roman Catholic Empire that was there, uh, mm -hmm. uh, versus the um, uh, the Jewish Hemiari Kingdom that was uh, sort of there, and that was helped and and, and supported by the Persian Sassanid Empire, and then you had the uh, blacks, i.e. the Northeast Africans, the Christians that were there to actually help out the, the, the populations that were being suppressed. So there was quite a bit of conflict going on. And that's how uh, we get into the episode that produces the, uh, the Qissa or the Qissa that the Quran tells us on Ashab al-Fil, the story of Ashab al-Fil, right? I see. So, yeah, and that's, and, and that's basically how the, the um, influence starts with the Northeast African, but Islam comes as as uh, not as an accident to um, or as a conquest or as a late stage, but mm. Islam comes and the Muslims come to the coast of, of uh, the Red Sea and the Muslims that uh, um, uh, that uh, sort of left Mecca when the time of the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi being oppressed for the purpose of actually getting into a land that they know and that they're familiar with. And a kingdom That's a very that interesting contrast you've said there, that it's not yeah. it was a conquest or any, because the vast majority of 
uh, lands that Islam eventually ended up in were one of one of the the various options you mentioned. But perhaps the Habasha is the only land where the earliest Sahaba took refuge in um, from yeah. from the oppressive Meccans. Even before Medina, because Medina is the, uh, we know as the uh, obviously the second Hijra of the Prophet. Mm. Actually, the third Hijra is mm. considered as. Um, uh, as Medina, because the first Hijra is the Hijra when the Prophet ﷺ tells his companions, mm-hmm. you know, go to uh, go to the Najash, and he is an Adil, he's a righteous guy, he's a righteous mm-hmm. king, no one oppresses him, there is no dhulm uh, in, in his sight, right? Mm-hmm. And this is an, uh, uh, people that they know, people that they traded with, people that they had a familiarity with, and that's why also uh, Amr ibn As, when he comes after them, right, mm-hmm. and he wants to sort of... Um, uh, get back the uh, the refugees that left, uh, or what they call the political um, asylum seekers at the time, right? Mm-hmm. And when he what he does is he brings his gifts, he brings his he sort of softens everybody that were out in his immediate circle, right? And so he tries to bribe everybody that he knew because he was a man who was familiar with the scene in the Aksumite Empire, and so mm-hmm. so there there is nothing that is uh, new, there is nothing that is uh, strange to them. Is a land they know, is a politics they know, is an atmosphere that they know. So yeah, that's why the Prophet says, go to them and you will find peace there. And then that's when they settle. And then late, years later on, when they realize obviously that they have to go back now, that there's probably a story that's going around that they have accepted Islam or that there is a better atmosphere now back in Mecca. When they go there, they realize that's not the case. A large group of them actually does now more hijra, right? Mm-hmm. Right. The so second hijra. Group, the second hijra, yeah. Mm-hmm. And that is the second hijra, and the third hijra is later on the Prophet sallallahu uh, heads towards uh, Medina, right? And so you can mm-hmm. see. And the funny thing is, uh, you have to look at it over the third of the uh, the, the Muslim populace at the time, mm-hmm. right? Over the third of Muslim populace actually made the hijra. So that is a huge number of mm. uh, people who were uh, part of the Prophet ﷺ fellowship, right? <laughs> and you can imagine, like, that that reduces your power, that reduces your um, support, that reduces your, you know, and, and, and we're not talking about average Joes, we're not talking about people, although uh, the mm. scholars of Tariq and Sirah, they say people who didn't have support within the Meccan, uh, traditional Meccan power uh, mm-hmm. structure, People didn't, that didn't have support actually made the hijrah, right? Yeah, a lot of a lot of the tariqs, but quite a few, uh, quite a few powerful from powerful households and families made mm-hmm. the hijrah, right? People who were rich, people who such were as Jafar and Nabi Talib, and more, and, and much more, and Osman, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. There is quite a, uh, mm-hmm. and 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 that happened because the Prophet Wasallam saw the benefit in actually uh, making sure that his followers have a refuge right and, and mm-hmm. not um and not think about uh okay am i getting support am i uh, um, should i be worried that everybody's leaving now because uh, if you look at the political scene of uh, mm-hmm. modern age if, if if you had a state that's coming up if you had a fellowship that's coming up you wouldn't want to reduce more than a third of your uh, uh, support or core support group mm-hmm. to nothing right you didn't it was like okay go on move and interestingly, some Sahaba didn't go to Medina and they stayed behind mm. uh, in Habasha. From them, I believe, was Ja'far ibn Abi Talib and, and uh, a group who eventually only joined the Muslims a few years later, or not even a few, but years later when it came to 
close to the time for Tabuk. Yeah. And and quite a few actually, majority of them actually didn't. Um, and the reason being is A, uh, the Prophet didn't instruct us. So the, mm. the Prophet only instructed just just before um, uh, uh, the most of the Muslim, uh, uh, by, by the time that the Muslim support and Muslim, uh, mm -hmm. uh, um, how do you say, the Muslim uh, were powerful enough. At that stage is when the Prophet is actually mm. requests when the time was appropriate. Uh, yeah, and also at the same time he's at the same time he's also requesting uh, the Najashi to accept Islam, right? And and obviously we know from the historical anecdotes and the the Sirah early on and the stories that uh, we know by that time already uh, either the Najash was either secretly Muslim mm. or has somewhat uh, accepted Islam. Just mm. not officially, and that, mm. that's when the Prophet sends him that letter, a famous when he says, "Okay, accept Islam," and that's when he sends back the letter and says, "I accept mm. Islam. Uh, I'm sending the, the people back, and I'm also sending uh, quite of, uh, a number of my people, his sons, uh, their family, mm. who embraced Islam, also going back as well." So there, you already have a core Muslim community mm. that embrace Islam that are going back. Uh, mm. to, to to the Muslim uh, uh, the Hijaz world as well. Yeah. So that you, one could say that perhaps one of the, that the first place that the, the that the Muslims migrated to and impacted and did dawah in outside of Mecca right. was actually Ardul Habasha. And interesting, uh, I remember is um, when the the last remaining uh, people from Habasha eventually migrated back to Medina a few yeah. years later. Jafar ibn Talib, his wife Asma bin Umayyis, and others. Uh, Umar ibn Khattab is narrated to have kind of said to them that you know uh, we're better than you, or we, we are more deserving of the Prophet Sallallahu than all of you because mm. we did we did Hijrah first to Medina. Yeah. Uh, and then famously Asma bin Umayyis says, "I'm not going to eat or drink until the Prophet Sallallahu I can complain to him about this statement." Mm. Mm. And then the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam says, "Laysa bi ahqa bi minkum." that they're not more deservant of you you guys mm. have done two, two hijras and they've only done one and asma bin Umis. this became famously known as hadith uh, al hadith al hijratain and asma bin Umis. when people were arriving in ships from from abyssinia mm. uh, they were going straight to asma bin Umis, and she was excitedly telling them this hadith yeah. it's one of the kind of beautiful moments that's the tafsir you know this is sometimes allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gives people preference over others not just because mm. of their stature and who they are and where they come from, but rather the 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 uh, the, the the Allah Subhanahu wa Taala choices of the time they live in, in the situations that they live in, right? And so sometimes mm. you know you could be uh, someone who is just tall, uh, come out of nothing, like Bilal uh, Ibn Rabah, oh, is in his mm. situation that he was, you know, and ends mm -hmm. up being the second uh, male figure. That accepts uh, an adult male that accepts Islam, mm -hmm. right after mm -hmm. Abu Bakr Siddiq radiAllahu anhu. So yeah, it's um, it is it is what it is, right? <laughs> mm -hmm. So the 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 and 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 this this whole thing because when whenever you study, because we we learn about the influence of, of of these people from Northeast Africa, very little. But if you mm -hmm. learn just purely statistically, because you just mentioned the the Hijratan, right? If, if you just look at statistically, the number, the sheer number of the, uh, the people that were around the Prophet 
that were either uh, from Northeast Africa, that were either black or that were either from Habasha, is staggering. Mm. And then the role they played, right? It's, mm. it's so close to him. It's like family. It's not like family. Mm. In many cases, it was family. You know? mm. <laughs> so therefore, Osama ibn Zayd and Zayd ibn Haritha. Yeah, it, and, and, and even going and further, us. even going further back, you know, when when he's born, when he's being raised, when he's mm. uh, then uh, uh, the, the the core. Um, uh, um, uh, people that immediately start embracing Islam and following him, and then also at the same time, uh, the people that he's relating to, the people that he adapts, uh, the, the 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 names that he gives people in terms of mm -hmm. his family lineage, the people that he marries off to his family, vice versa, the people that are married uh, uh, to him, you know, and mm -hmm. all these things. If you study and you look into it, and the 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 intricity and the closeness the Prophet had with the people of Ard al-Habasha or the people of Northeast Africa. It's just mind-blowing. And then and then to just think about the erasure of of, of that image, you know? That's very interesting. That, you know, yeah. where, is that something that's a post, uh, you know, post-transatlantic slave trade phenomenon or is that something that has been happening for a long time, for centuries? No, it has been happening because uh, I study a lot of biographical layers. So I just mm. look into... Uh, the biographical uh, data and details and, and 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 books that are available to us at the moment right mm -hmm. and within those i try to uh, get out the, uh, some sort of a, um, a collection of dictionary of scholarship so i'm working on that for quite a, some time now and i'll inshallah it will be uh, a long-term project but Habasha <laughs> or whatever else, I don't know. Allah, but, um, uh, so the the point I was trying to make is, um, so when, what you've come across is that sometimes it's, it's very plain if you look at early on uh, who is uh, among the not only among the Sahaba because there's tons among the Sahaba, and alhamdulillah, there's a quite of uh, literature dedicated to. Who these individuals are, where their backgrounds are, alhamdulillah. So that is early on companions are not the issue. The problem is we don't study enough and we don't know who they are. You know, it's just that mm. that that image of them being uh, black or them being from Africa or them being from Ardar Habasha is completely non-existent. Put that aside. Then you've mm. got the scholars, uh, the Tabi'in and Tabu Tabi'in, and then the early generation, the first. Uh, uh, the, the, the then that these people are really not in in the picture so you will have to do like quite a lot of work to understand who is from where and what you know mm. and so a lot of the time it's just simply because they are not known to be from mm. there and no one emphasizes them being of, of, of a black or of or, or, or being of a Habash descent uh, or, or 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 being people of, of certain ethnicity, rather it's just usually just their names, you know. Yeah. And so when you end up digging and you start looking into the biographical layers, and then they start telling you, oh, you cannot tell that by their name. So the, the biographers will sometimes say, oh, this person was from there. And one of the famous uh, um, uh, individuals, if I just uh, want to sort of get opportunity to stand still on. Is the the teacher, the first teacher, and uh, the guy who basically directs our Imam, the uh, Matlabi Imam, Imam al Shafi'i, is mm. his teacher, Az Zanji, right? Mm. And then the Muslim of Khalid Az Zanji from Mecca. Nah, sahih. 
Mm. And so uh, Imam Zinji is... Of course, from Zinj. There is an, there is an ikhtilaf in between. Mm-hmm. Was he really from Zinj, i.e. East Africa proper? Was he from the Sahili coast or is he from East Africa proper? Or is he uh, so-called because they, um, and quote-unquote, uh, they called him so black because he was so white, right? Okay, <laughs> He was so white, they called him black, right? And so you've got discussions around this and there's a lot of details around that. And then there is a lot of uh, details on the other side saying, no, that's not the case. And and obviously you can imagine which um, opinion we follow and uh, prioritize, which is that he was from East Africa, that he was black and that he was uh, uh, of African descent. Obviously he was born in, in, in Mecca and raised there and his father was uh, uh, one of the early people or the molas that um, uh, settled there, right? And so, mm. uh, and, and the early scholars who actually witnessed him and saw him mentioned that he was black, right? The reason he was called that, he was black. And mm-hmm. later on, people who didn't see him and are the second generation somewhat are the ones that are describing him as uh, and that he was called black because he was so white, right? But alhamdulillah. So a lot of that happens where, and always the focus is, mm-hmm. you know, was this person a uh, slave? Was this person this? Or was this person that? There's very few mm-hmm. um, uh, focus on, you know, how... Uh, intergenerational are these people right because mm. we talked about you know they've they've been there for quite some time even even sometimes mm. you could say it a few decades uh, uh, before the prophet was born even sometimes few centuries before the prophet came to the scene and then even at the mm. time of the prophet even if you look at the better no one really talks about that that battle of mm. better Quite a number of the uh, the Quraysh who were fighting the Prophet sallallahu hired a regiment of Habashis because Mecca mm. had a, a quarter called uh, the quarter of Habashis, right? And within that quarter, the people that lived there predominantly were Habashis. They were people who traders. They were sometimes um, agents uh, to Ard al-Habasha. Sometimes they um, worked in the slave industry. Sometimes they worked um, in the uh, mercenary industry, so you could hire them, and then you could mm-hmm. uh, make sure that you know you could uh, um, uh, make sure that you know if you needed to get a security for your caravan, these type of things, and all of that was happening. And so Quraysh, they hired a, a, a group of them, and this is what Imam Al uh, Imam Al Waqidi in his Maghazi uh, uh, actually mentions, right? And so there's a lot of uh, information and data and and and, and details that tells us that these people were not in few numbers. They were not an exception. They were really uh, 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 quite a huge mm-hmm. number of people that lived there and not always as slaves, you know, because that's the mm-hmm. dominant narrative. That's interesting. And the this erasure uh, of the role of uh, of the Ahbash, of the uh, those of African descent or those who are black from Islamic scholarship or Islamic history, uh, is that would you say from your from your knowledge from your research would you say that's a deliberate erasure or would you say that's rooted in some form of uh, racism or some some kind of uh, a condescension towards the people of that descent um it could it depends on what time you, line you're looking at what time period mm-hmm. you're looking at so it can't be either this or that um, uh, mm-hmm. on 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 some cases it could be um uh, a negative connotation that carries the to be a black to be 
to be from Africa, right? And and that is the culture. Unfortunately, that uh, at a certain time period, people would have that impression or that idea that to be black or to be Habashi uh, or to be from there, it's a, uh, a negative uh, connotation, and therefore they would stay away from it. Uh, like for example, Imam Abdurrahman al uh, al Jawzi. Uh, Abu Faraj. Abu Faraj. Mm. Yeah, in his introduction of his book, um, uh, I think it's called is it Tanwir? Tanwir al Ghabash. Um, and so that title, if, if you look at the introduction early on, he mentioned that one of the reasons that he wrote the book is because he saw some of not average Jews, not people who were slaves, not people who were from uh, um, quote unquote low caste or whatever it else it might be. Mm. He saw people who were uh, um, uh, uh, over upper class black people or upper class Habashis who lamented, who were sad about being black and their skin color, right? Mm. Because of the situation uh, and, 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 and the, um, uh, the uh, denigration of those people in Baghdad at that time period. Mm, and, and, and that is when that is when he decides to write the book and say, okay, you know what? I need to write a book because obviously this racial uh, uh, construct that people have about that is, you know, linked to these people, it's not right because, you know, they, they have a huge uh, heritage, they have an amazing uh, uh, stature and, 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 and sort of um, uh, uh, they are really uh, people of... Uh, um, the people to be revered, people exactly. to be honored. And, and, yeah. and, and then if you dig a bit deeper if you look into what brought that scene uh, mm. to Baghdad at that timeline you will get to realize that the decade and this is something I wrote about in, in one of my introductions is to say that if you look at that time period that Abdurrahman Abu Faraj uh, that he writes this book a decade or two uh, or two I think a decade or two or a decade and a half yeah, I don't have to get the number uh, there's there's been somewhat uh, civil war that brewed uh, in um, in Cairo, right in Cairo, mm-hmm. and it was uh, you could say from our modern perspective, it could be classed as a racial war, right? Because the, the majority of the people who were ruling at that time in in, in Cairo and who were part of the military infrastructure were people of Habasha. They were people of black uh, descent, mm-hmm. and this was this in the Mamluk the, era. No, this prior to that, the Fatimids, okay. right? And so uh-huh. a lot of that, what they did is they, uh, and, uh, and remnants of the Abbasid, right? Uh, so remnants of the Abbasid dynasties and the early Fatimids, what they did is they made sure that they recruited from the black people over extensively. And that created this sort of a culture where they uh, were the power behind the power, right? They were the army, they were the wazirs, they were the generals, and some even would coup sometimes, some even would take the, uh, uh, replace sultans, because, you know, you couldn't be sultan because you need to have that bloodline, you have to have that descent. But there was the power behind the power because the power was not really much of a power. Uh, it was so symbolic. They, yeah, it was very symbolic. So, and that would happen constantly. And then Imam uh, uh, Salahuddin al-Ayyubi actually gets into the scene and quite a few of them he replaces. And then there's a, a sort of a, 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 a problem that develops because of that because there is a coup that one of the uh, Habashi uh, generals actually maintains and keeps whole uh, Qahira under his lock and uh, Salahuddin and some of his generals and uh, sorry Nuruddin Zenji and the uh, Salahuddin's generals sends there to actually 
replace that guy. And then a huge uh, thing happens whereby Imam al-Makhrizi uh, in one of his books later on says, uh, in few days, I think within a less than a week, there, there, there has been so much battle and so much killing specifically of people of black descent mm-hmm. that you could literally see that, you know, uh, and there was there was a almost a massacre going on because the 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 the, the, the real power that uh, was maintained and the real power and the military infrastructure that was coming to the scene was the Turkish slaves, right, mm-hmm. of of that descent. And so to balance that power out, and that is when later on the Mamluks come to scene because by then the Mamluks come to uh, the power, and the, we know from the the history the Mamluks are. Uh, uh, from the Turkish uh, 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 background, for the yeah. most part, right? Turkey. Yeah. So, um, and and that's how it happens. So that is when Imam uh, Abdurrahman writes that book slightly, mm. because obviously that also spills over to Baghdad, and there's a, a lot of issues that is going on in that within that century, the fifth century, uh, sorry, the the uh, late fifth uh, century, early sixth century Hijri. Um, that is one of these things that are going on in, in the scene of uh, uh, the Muslim uh, dynasties in, in what was uh, Qahira as well as uh, Baghdad, right? And so it, it had an effect on how people saw the, uh, the people of Ard al-Habasha as well as the people that uh, were black from that era. And obviously there were people who were seen as either sometimes oppressors, people who were seen as people... Uh, um, Cooping people who were seen as being uh, uh, chasing after power, you know, uh, chasing after dynasty, and and majority of them uh, um, uh, were actually uh, chased after, and and we can see that image repeating again and again and again uh, yeah. later on. Yeah, that's really very interesting, and uh, kind of stemming from that same point, um, you know, there is a a lot of spotlight given to when it comes to Islamic scholarship, mm-hmm. uh, scholars from the subcontinent particularly in the Hadith sciences, Nadir Hussein al-Dehlawi and the mm-hmm. School of Deoband and others, Al-Hadith in India mm-hmm. um, and the subcontinent in general. And when it comes to West Africa, especially, you know, I, I've seen in the UK uh, or in Western countries, there's a lot of popularity with Maghribi ways of dressing, the Warsh, Annafi'a uh, mm-hmm. recitation of the Quran, uh, with the kind of the Tasawwuf the, the and the Sufi culture from, from Morocco and from, from West Africa. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I find, I do see and I do feel that the East African legacy of scholarship is somewhat undermined. And uh, mm. I was going to ask you to talk about that in a second. But before that, there's one thing I noticed, I've noticed very consistently. Um, legacy of scholarship. And that is from the and, uh, Somalis that I know personally, the Somalis mm. that I know personally and the Somalis I know that have uh, immigrants in Sweden, in Holland, in the UK. There's one thing I see in common across them, two things. One mm. thing I've noticed is that the Somali community are very... Uh, preservant of their Islam and their deen in comparison to other immigrants such as subcontinental immigrants, Pakistanis, Indians uh, Mm -hmm. who form the majority of immigrants in the UK uh, Mm -hmm. and and others. The other thing I've noticed is that if we say that, um, you know, in the subcontinent is famous for hadith, if we say that, uh, you know, West Africa is famous for uh, for hifth, for memorization, for example, I, I would definitely say that from what I've seen from the Somalis that I know, that the Somalis are Ahlul Quran. Mm. And I want to know what is the what is the historical precedent for that being the case? Perhaps there's something there in the history of religious scholarship that mm. 
the, there is a, sp- a special interest, at least the Somalis that, that I've come across and that I know in Quran, in Qiraat, in Hifth, in memorizing the Quran, in recitation of the Quran. Mm. Uh, and I can say that confidently in every city of the UK, there is one, you know, young Somali in their 20s who is a, you know, a very big up and coming Qari or who has won worldwide competitions. Whenever I see the Dubai International Holy Quran Awards uh, where I grew up, I used mm. to see Holland, mm. Sweden, the UK and the US all represented by Somalis in the same year. <laughs> so I, I, I always <laughs> used to wonder. I guess one another. <laughs> so, so that's, I guess, uh, that's kind of a more a side question of, of where does this passion for the Quran come from? But then more importantly, what is the legacy of Islamic scholarship, of seminaries, of ulama, of, uh, you know, from, yeah. from, from the East Africa? It's interesting that you raise that point uh, about the, um, uh, the Somalis and, and, and their uh, their deep love and indebtedness to, to the Quranic studies and the love and passion for the Quran. SubhanAllah, that is an observation that uh, not only is um, uh, seen in modernity, uh, that you see, like what you just mentioned about earlier, uh, early on, that people of, there are people of Quran, right? There are a lot of them uh, have, uh, SubhanAllah, passion and love to recite the Quran and learn earlier. And this is something that uh, from child on that we've been raised to study, right? And so if you look at uh, 99.9 or whatever, if you speak to any Somali, uh, whether he is a professor, uh, whether he is even sometimes very secular in his uh, way of uh, life, whether they are um, uh, not into religious studies, if you just asked them and you said, uh, when you were a child, uh, were you um, taught the Quran? Did you have to go to madrasa? Did you have to, uh, what we call duksi, right? Did you have to memorize the Quran early on as a child? There is probably the probability that they would say yes, even in modern days, right? And this is the case because as a child on, every child is brought to the madrasa. Every child is made sure that they get to go to madrasa and study the Quran. And therefore, at a ch- uh, early on, uh, Somali children are raised with the himma and love of not only memorizing the Quran, but also recite, recitation, tajweed, hefd, and obviously because of um, uh, not only to the proximity of uh, the Arabian Peninsula, but also our ability to um, uh, have the similar proof that are in within the Arabic uh, languages as within our language, uh, th- it made quite a f- easy way in adapting the Quran and learning it, right? So it's not something that we have to put an uh, 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 effort in trying to learn and how to pronounce these things. So that is easily uh, one of those ways that people uh, could actually say that's how it's explained. But also, um, uh, if you look at early on history, if you look at uh, some of the ulama and these biographical works that that have been collecting, a uh, majority of the um, uh, scholars of the biographical layers, sometimes they just like Imam Sakhawi, for example, uh, uh, one of the biographical way, uh, layers of uh, Al-Jazari, uh, when he writes his biographical ways of the Qurra. Uh, if you look at these biographical layers and these people that actually, or even the Muhaddithin and their biographical layers, or the Fuqaha and the biographical layers, 
all of them, when you see people that come from Ardal Habasha, Northeast Africa, or the Somali Peninsula area, what you distinctively note is that they were expert in Quranic recitations, and then that they were very good in uh, their Qira'ah, and that there were people mm -hmm. actually came to study with them. And then sometimes if you look at the biographical layers of the Quras that people actually came and take uh, ijazat from and or take asanid from, you mm -hmm. see some of these ulama that are found in there that they are actually studied with, right? Yes. And so you see this with Imam al-Dahabi, for example, when he's talking about his Sahih al-Bukhari and some of the scholars that he took from Sahih al-Bukhari coming from the Somali Peninsula, he would distinctively mention they are experts in Quran. And then sometimes we'll say his his uh, his khat and his expertise in, in writing calligraphy or even the the, um, the ornamentation of the Quran itself was an, mm. on an expert level, right? So they knew. And sometimes he's, he would say this is where the expertise ends, you know. Some of these uh -huh. guys. Some and of if there answer. was if there was a book to write about the virtues of a people, mm. this is enough of a virtue. Allah says, ibadina." We then gifted the knowledge and the recitation and the ability yeah. to connect to the Quran to those we selected from our states. Not everybody gets this mm, uh, mm. this gift from Allah. This is what he says. He says this is the where the the, the, the the whole thing, the expertise ends. And then sometimes, you know, and I, we know from the biographical layers, obviously, a lot of people are described as such. But that tells you their maqam. In, in essence, you know, where, where they stand in terms of that knowledge. So, and then obviously, you know, when, when we look at, uh, the, yes, there was a period of time in, in, in the last century or two when the colonial powers came to the peninsula, and I know we're not going to go into that at the moment, uh, that uh, a lot of these things got um, uh, taken away. A lot of these traditions got sort of broken. And therefore, the, the expertise, the studies, it was not so much developed and emphasized until scholars again get uh, um, uh, reintroduced to the scene like you know uh, imam uh, and and the sheikh uh, uh, is very famous in the world in modern day sheikh abdul shir sheikh al sufi and his father they they are in essence the um, the the family or the household name that it reintroduces the the science of tajweed and qira'a to the Somali uh, Peninsula once more, uh, because that has just completely sort of collapsed uh, prior to that time. But uh, in essence, yes, the, the the love and the Himma is there because the tools that people used to study and that made this process of hip very easy and a uh, child and children you, uh, being uh, uh, taught early on such as the law, we, we use the law, you know, the, the law is the tablet. The, yeah, the wooden tablet is one of those uh, formats that Somalis use to memorize the Quran, right? And that is actually, and there is, if you traditionally went to any Somali madrasa, or what we call duksi, there wouldn't be a mushaf in, on site. You know, there, there is mm -hmm. no, there is no, there is no, uh, there is no kitab. And so everything is done uh, from memory. The, the one thing interesting the, when you said that the reason yeah. they love Quran is because of the madrasa, mm. I would say from a subcontinental background that people may love the Quran despite the madrasa because that mm. experience is not a pleasant experience for more, for many people. Well, whereas, yeah, the same thing, yeah. yeah. Yeah, but whereas for 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 my, my my the friends that I know and and my brothers who I know who are hufal from who got, went to the duksi, their experience is an experience of love of the Quran. Mm, mm, mm. It, you know, it but may be a difference is, in teaching method. The thing is, this, I think for majority of the um, uh, 
uh, madrasa system that we have across the Muslim world. Uh, if you look at in hindsight or even in modernity, it can be somewhat traumatizing because the methodology and the things that the, the muallims and the madaris used to teach the students, right? But if you ask any adult that went through that system, or, or not any adult, but for majority of the time, people who actually use that system of teaching the way it should be used, they wouldn't have any problems. So majority of us have a uh, uh, looking at uh, from uh, from that perspective, and we think of it as a good memory, right? Mm -hmm. Okay, yeah. The Malim used to give me a whack or two here and there. He used yes. to have his uh, whip, you know, all these things. But it straightened me, and I can mm -hmm. speak from my own experience. And I know from mm -hmm. tons of other people who are spiritual, not on an abusive level. Obviously, that is taboo. That's not uh, permissible. That's not allowed. And mm -hmm. some might argue, why do anyone anyway need to be uh, uh, whipped or or, or, or or sort of uh, slightly uh, hit? There or is bruised, a little, for example. Mm. Yeah, there is a whole complete uh, reasoning that mm. could be discussed on a sideline. Mm. And this is not mm. the place to discuss that issue. But one of the reasons that um, you would understand is Adam, right? Because children, mm have an ability to be rebels at a child on and any primary teacher can know that right and so the, the it teaches the child to have a proper adab with the quran and the 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 um uh, the allness that it's needed with the quran right and obviously mm -hmm. yes it should not be got, uh, gone out of bounds and mm -hmm. if, if and why is it necessary to do that that's also completely another discussion mm -hmm. that can be had about it but for the majority of the time those kids that are very frantic who don't listen who do not obey you know symbolically the whip being there is enough to set them straight right mm -hmm. <laughs> because that is what they that's what they they sort of uh, uh, understand and 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 so and so i'm not sort of arguing for that position or everything else but that mm -hmm. is a discussion to be had and we should not be always seen from the lens of modernity and any, you know, any problem, any issue that we have in modernity in the Western world does not mean necessarily that it should be true for the experience of other places and, and, and other times. That's mm. also something that we should recognize. That, that, that's a very good point. Jazakallah um, khair. And moving back from that tangent to the, the earlier question about yes. the impact of Islamic scholarship from, uh, from, the, from East Africa, from the Horn of Africa. Yeah. Uh, can you tell us anything you know of the ulama or the sciences or you know primary seminaries that existed in, in East Africa or even exist today? Mm -hmm. So um, the seminaries that has um, come to uh, come to exist early on, we could say technically are uh, sort of sometimes reproduced from biographical layers and how ulama traveled, whether they would be from the area or uh, coming from, I don't know, maybe from the Persian Gulf, uh, Arabian Peninsula, um, uh, west part of uh, African continent, as well as the Maghrib, you know, the interactions that people have with another, because you have to remember the Red Sea coast, as well as the Indian Ocean, specifically when we're talking about the Horn and East Africa proper, the, the, um, the relationship and interactions of the people that live in that vicinity predates Islam. And so the interactions and, 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 and people coming and traveling and trading and, 
uh, buy-in and selling and and having these sort of interactions and having to sort of understanding had it, it predates Islam. So and obviously when Islam came, this actually continued and even sometimes even much more intense than it would have uh, done in the past, right? And obviously, when once the Islamic identity is created by the Muslims, then it actually creates that uh, affinity. It creates that um, uh, 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 um, uh, cohesionness that you know they having a similar identity because we're both Muslims, right? It, it doesn't matter where I'm from. The Frank Lungua is obviously Arabic a lot of the times, and so all these things they help towards um, interactions of people and people actually uh, traveling and exchanging goods and ideas. And therefore, it is logical that sometimes people of the uh, continent, uh, the, uh, the African continent specifically, the uh, uh, Northeast Africa part, travel to uh, other parts of the world to exchange knowledge or vice versa. So people actually come to the uh, continent. And so we have uh, credible data that actually go back early on. Like, for example, what we mentioned earlier on, uh, uh, even the time of Imam Dahabi, for example, even earlier on than Imam Dahabi. Imam Dahabi uh, mentions one of his sheikh that comes from Mogadishu. He says he went to the uh, Indo-Pak continent. He studied there. He was teaching. And one of, he studied hadith from one of the uh, muhaddiths. He studied the Sahih al-Bukhari from one of the muhaddiths there. And he then took that isnat that he took from the Indo-Pak and all the way to uh, Syria, modern day Damascus, right? And they saw the Damascene scene actually would actually embrace the Sheikh and come and study with, and uh, Imam Dhahabi was one of them, right? And studying. So that teaches you the sort of um, uh, the, the, um, the interactions of the people of the, the African continent, not only trans, uh, transporting or exporting their knowledge and their, uh, their, their ilm, but actually taking ilm and Asanis from elsewhere that was not accessible at the time in the Arabian Peninsula, for example, and then actually coming there and to teach, right? And a similar thing, we have uh, uh, some of the uh, uh, data that uh, you could uh, mention is Imam Ibn, Bat uh, Ibn Battuta, uh, when he actually travels in his famous Rihla, when he comes to Zayla, which is modern-day Somaliland, and he goes to later on to Mogadishu, some of the things he observes is the, the people, the law for ilm, and the law for studying to the mm. point where he mentions that in Mogadishu there is an actually a, a center of knowledge where the madrasa, uh, the teaching uh, halaqa is maintained not only by the sultan but also the qadi. And this is where actually Imam Ibn Battuta stays for the week or two that he is in Mogadishu. He stays with the students, mm. he sleeps with the students oh, because next to the, uh, next to the, uh, uh, next to the, uh, um, the jami'ah, the, the masjid, where the students study the deen and the various curriculum, is a dormant where students actually sleep. Specifically, students who are poor, that are not from there, who cannot afford, because they used to have a parsity, they used to get a funding to, to be able to afford. And so the uh, he spends time with them and sleeps there, and he's put sometimes also in the Qadi al uh, uh place. And so some of the things he describes and the scenes that he describes is the love and passion for ilm and mm. the studies. And we know again from the uh, uh, mid uh, six, uh, 600 something, late 500 something, one of the, um, the Hadarim scholars that is famous, uh, that uh, leaves Tarim in Hadramaut to actually study and take uh, ilm, especially our Marhab, the Shafi'i Fiqh, 
in Mogadishu, you know, and then he comes and he settles there and he studies with uh, one of the ulama and he studies from what we know, uh, his biography, the Tanbi, he studies the uh, the wasit of Imam al-Ghazali. Can you imagine that? It's just, <laughs> it's not a small book. <laughs> you know, it's no. not, we're not talking about uh, small mutun here, you know, we're talking about uh, large volumes of, of, of works that are being taught. You know, he studies uh, the uh, the Hawi he mentions, you know, and Imam Ghrizi, funnily enough, centuries later, mentions and at the late stage of his life, Imam Ghrizi is the student of Ibn Khaldun, the famous historian of Mamluk, well-traveled, well-ridden, worked under so many uh, sultans and stuff. You would think this guy is up there with his fiqh. He had an official post as a clerk as a uh, copyist for the sultan as a uh, uh, official letter writer he had a, a he was a secretary for the sultan he did so many things and this guy was not um lacking experience he was not lacking in his cv and you mentioned and he mentions that uh, when he was in mecca in one of his uh, long stays in mecca and his bath that one of the scholars that comes from uh, uh Mogadishu originally who comes there was a qadi of lamu and a qadi of lamu comes and settles in Mecca, and he studies with him some of the Shafi'i fiqh works, you know, major Shafi'i fiqh mm-hmm. works, that he could easily have access to. At the end of the day, he lived in Qahira. He lived, he's living currently a year or a year or two at the time in Mecca. Mm-hmm. And, and this is just a year or year or two before Imam Maghrizi passes away and dies, right? And so he says, he schooled me. He taught me the proper, the madhab, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so you can imagine that the level of knowledge, the level of refinement, and the level of understanding uh, that people had of uh, that part of the world compared to uh, uh, um, what was available at the time. You can see it's not always that um, the, 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 the people of that part of the world, i.e. Ard al-Habasha or Northeast Africa or East Africa or the Swahili coast, are not always passive, right? But they're active. So not all the time that things are coming to them, they're not always given knowledge, they're not always uh, transported to the madahib, but they're actually teaching, they're actually uh, adding to it, they're refining it and, 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 and adding to the ilm. You know? mm-hmm. And we, we, can, we can tell uh, anecdotes on, 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 on mutun of Hanafi fiqh, the shuruh, takhrij, you know, the nasb raya and the, it's maqam al Yeah, mm-hmm. and it's takhrij, uh, it's a takhrij work that is, uh, uh, like Sheikh Nasruddin Albani said, has no uh, uh, equivalent, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that is, uh, that is a guy who went into the library and, you know, digged around uh, all the books and the and and, and the uh, what do you call it on the all the uh, manuscripts. manuscripts. Yeah. yeah, and so and 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 he is not alone. You you've got hadith that predated him that talk about that that way. Mm-hmm. And so you look at you know this, these people coming to the scene of what is the Islamic. Uh, seminaries of the world at the time mm-hmm. and not only being uh, not adding to the ilm but not adding to the curriculum but are actually uh, refining uh, the certain sciences are innovating in certain sciences like mm-hmm. the Takhrij uh, Sheikh uh, uh, and, and Dr. Jonathan Brown one of his works that he uh, the, the, uh, uh, if I'm not mistaken uh, one of his hadith works, if I'm not mistaken, I don't remember the title ex- exactly. I'll, um, I'll, I'll, I'll jog my memory later on. Is mm-hmm. to say that the, after the first takhrij work that we know of Al Mundri, right? The first takhrij, you know, the second takhrij work that. Takhrij, just for the just to define for those who don't know what takhrij is, it's um, 
you know, in, in books where in books where hadith are mentioned, they're quoted, but not necessarily referenced. Takhrij works basically collect all the various routes where this report was transmitted through um, back to its sources, back to its original sources in the books of hadith, as well as perhaps it's, it's a various chains of narration, uh, what's called jam'u turuq kinds mm. of seas. Or it's been through this route, through this route, through this companion, through that tabi'i kind of combine that in one place uh, as like a almost like a tree diagram of the journey of this report from the prophet sallallahu lips to yeah. to our day today so that's a it's a very it's a specialized job and it's it's not it's, it's not a laborious. it's not an easy task <laughs> it's laborious. you can imagine like one hadith and its chain you have to produce every chain that has a similar hadith not exact hadith but yeah even the variants where certain words are and then yeah. just like and detailed all these things and that's why it's like the bible and i don't want to use that terminology to describe the son of the prophet but it's the reference work when you want to go into okay did al-zayla'i of from zayla'i did he actually go into that topic did he actually go into that did he mention it and then ulama when they talk about sheikh like sheikh muhammad awama it's like he he didn't have to to madhab or this you know he didn't he didn't focus on is this evidence pro or uh, against my madhab, right? My madhab. Is it against the point? Is, is, that the, is, the job of, is the job of the verifier of the historian to kind of objectively look at where is this coming from rather than yeah, yeah. for me and, or against? And you can see the scholarship that, this, uh, that these people came with and how they refined it. And then the, therefore you're looking at uh, um, uh, these people who actually are refining these uh, sciences, who are writing these works, who are two go point. Uh, you have women, we haven't talked about women really much of it. You have women who mm. are transmitters of hadith. You know, one of the most famous uh, 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 transmitters of, the, of Bukhari, especially of, of uh, last, uh, I don't know, six, seven centuries that people go back to is the recension of what we have today, uh, the, the, uh, the copy that we have today of the, um, was it Yunani? Yunini? I have always problem. Uh, the Yunini, Yunini manuscript. Yeah, and then and it comes from the scholars and the students uh, that actually uh, sort of helped that produce that line of 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 of, of um, uh, that specific. How do you say that specific uh, recension? And you look at if you look at the the people who actually part of that who transmitted it, right? Uh, if you look at it early on, is for example uh, Aisha bint uh, Abdul Hadi, right? The, the daughter of uh, uh, Abdul Hadi, the famous uh, scholar of Hadith Hanbali, right? She she was very young when she studied uh, some of these scholars that actually came to her dad's session. Sometimes like four or five years old or something, she took this snot from them, and obviously not uh, at the age to be um, uh, having understanding of what that means. But she was there sitting and. You know, they gave they give in the environment, her, right? And then at her late age, you know, at her late age, like I don't know, 70 or 80 years on or 90 years on, she's passing on to someone that is also of a similar age when she was learning. And so that creates that chain of transmission where you know these hadiths are actually now so short, so superior than anybody else on the face of earth. So we have like people like uh, Khadija bin. Bint Abu Farij al Zayliya that comes from uh, that family household, the famous. They're from the Messine. They 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 stayed in time in Mecca. Her father was a Qari. He was 
famous and expert in uh, the, uh, the recitation and transmitted it and the khat as well. And people came to him to study and, and, and sort of, and then transmit hadith to him, vice versa, and all these things, right? And this is when she's studying. And she is a cr uh, crucial uh, link to that as well. And uh, our Sheikh, uh, Sheikh Muhammad uh, Akram Nadwi, uh, mentions that in uh, the introduction of uh, his book of Muhadithat. And so these mm. things exist. And Imam Sakhawi mentions also that he was a student of hers, uh, that he studied uh, a lot of uh, uh, her um, uh, hadith work and, and, and her uh, asanid. So you can, you can early on understand that the crucial link that mm. these people play is not limited to uh, a sort of a footnote because that's what we see like oh, okay mm -hmm. you know a footnote mm -hmm. but it's actually quite a huge role and sometimes when you think hmm, if i remove that figure from there what kind of effect would it have you know mm -hmm. if you remove that figure and their work and their contribution what kind of effect would have had you know, a lot of, it, it wouldn't it, right. it wouldn't be small yeah yeah no definitely and you know, one even thinks about Ata ibn Abi Rabah, uh, um, somehow uh, it comes to mind now, uh, the Mufti of Mecca in the era of the Tabi'een, if I'm not mistaken. Mm. If you, how many chains of narration go through Ata? Mm. Virtually. Especially from our Madhab. Especially from the Shafi'i Madhab and, yeah, and um, like especially the narration from Medina. <laughs> yeah, so subhanAllah, if you remove Ata, what is left, you know, similar mm. to Ibn Shihab al-Zuhri in, in hadith narration, he's a pillar mm. of hadith, how many narrations go through him, similar to that, you know, Ata ibn Abi Rabah, may Allah have mercy on him. And moving on to kind of more modern times, uh, with the rise of col uh, colonialism, I believe, if I'm not mistaken, Italy, uh, it might be the case, I think I'm not mistaken, Italy colonized Somalia, and parts mm. of East Africa, I believe, might have, might have been, Italy might have been other, uh, other colonizers. Uh, what is the impact uh, on scholarship, on on Islam in East Africa, in the Horn of Africa, and also what is the response of the scholarship and, and others to this oppression and this colonialism, and how, how do they eventually, uh, you know, see the departure of, of, of these of these colonists? Yeah, um, to be honest, that's a, a very complex uh, question to answer because uh, at the end of the day, there is very little literature, uh, very little uh, studies from the perspective of Muslims, from the perspective of mm -hmm. the people who are uh, indigenous and local to the area. There's very literature, uh, very um, uh, little uh, in terms of uh, literature, specifically, specifically academic. Uh, there are a few works that, uh, for example, uh, um, uh, Dr. Abdurrahman uh, Ali Badio, uh, one of his work, famous work is Islamic Movement, and I ask uh, everybody to uh, note that down and proper purchase uh, on Amazon mm. stuff. It's called the uh, Islamic movement in the uh, uh, in Somalia or the history of Islamic movement in Somalia. Although he focuses on modernity in terms of the the various groups and that popped up, uh, whether they would be political groups or otherwise, he goes early on starts describing and assessing the effect that uh, these colonial powers had on, on, on the land as well as the people in terms of the Islamic sciences and development, right? And quite a few uh, of uh, that is because when they came and settled in these predominantly coastal areas, because they haven't gone beyond the coastal areas, uh, except later stage, like the Italians, for example, they tried to go further inland in for, for the purpose of anti-slavery <laughs> i'm doing this uh, sort of uh, quote unquote because 
is uh, for a lot of the Western uh, powers at the time, they were enforcing uh, in Muslim nations or Muslim uh, uh, world at the time to sort of make sure that slavery was completely and utterly banned, right? And so they came with this law, although they were at the time people who actually benefited the most from the slavery, mm-hmm. and they, they came up with this rule, okay, that we have to sort of ban it, we have to police the uh, Muslim world, specifically the coastal areas, and in doing that. And so they would actually go to the interior for the sake of actually stopping uh, or putting stop to the roots of the caravans or the roots where these things happen. And that happened a lot. And then sometimes also they would, uh, um, uh, how do you say, dedicate uh, studies in finding out how many of these settlements, how many of these cities uh, had slaves, used slaves, or sold slaves, right? And so how much of the economy was based on slavery. And some of these studies come up with ridiculous amount of numbers on like uh, Two third, or one, or one third, or even sometimes uh, half of of the populace was slaves, right? In some of these major cities, things that are just boggles our mind, right? And so, uh, and I, I'm mentioning this because just so that we can sort of understand mm. that a lot of what the colonial, uh, colonial uh, powers were doing in the background, in their offices, in their mandates, were to further their mission, to further their mission of superiority, uh, mm. to further their mission of uh, 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 Christian values, to further their mission of civilizing the uncivilized, right? And mm. a lot of these things were happening in this context, and, and, and that required that removing Islamic identities as well as uh, the Islamic uh, 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 studies and Islamic values out of the equation. And so sometimes mm. they would uh, put up uh, orphanages, Sometimes they would put up uh, churches. Sometimes they would actually say, okay, we are organizing debates. Like, for example, in Tanzania, they would have a halakas, open debates with Muslims. You know, like, for example, mm. you would have German uh, pastors that would come. And then the, the German empire or the German kingdom at the time would actually finance that completely and utterly so that these people can actually come in there and debate with the people and say, okay, let's talk about your Quran, you know, this and that, and your, let's talk about your Sunnah, this and that. And then sometimes, subhanAllah, the, the, the Swahili scholars and the Tanzanian scholars would actually say, no, let's talk about the Bible, you know. Mm-hmm. We're familiar with the Bible as well. Let's let's talk about the Bible. You know, let's. What version do you have? What discussion do you want? And so sometimes these scholars were so well bent, and then they would be just because sometimes because the training that they would had was so inadequate that would that was it was designed of a a, a European uh, from a European mindset that said, okay, these people were not well read. These people were not well researched. They do not know. It's it it it, it wasn't really updated properly. So these people would get that sort of training and then they would come and then they would say, okay, you know what? We're going to preach the word of Jesus, right? The way we, mm-hmm. We're going to teach everything. And then they would say, yeah, we know the word of Jesus. It's, it's the Mus'haf here. You know, it's the Quran. We have the word mm-hmm. of Jesus. You know, let's talk about that. And, and so these debates would actually be like this. And sometimes some of these Swahili uh, scholars actually wrote commentaries on the Bible in Swahili. Which is subhanAllah. <laughs> like, you know, uh, some of the things that I don't, I don't think that we have from the Muslim perspective a lot of uh, literature that local languages that have written their, within their own languages a commentary from a Muslim perspective of the Bible. A critical right? commentary. Yeah. yeah. So subhanAllah, and this is, uh, this is something that uh, had, has been, uh, had, had, uh, had happened 
and and it helped uh, and contributed towards the identity. And obviously, it did not help that these Muslims were not willing to let go the identity, the Islamic identity. And that is why, as a consequence, there was a lot of um, uh, how do you say uprising? There was a lot of revolutions, quote unquote. There was a lot of freedom fighters. There was a lot of jihad, right? And all of these things were uh, put in the rubric of um, uh, uh, they, they were, uh, for example, pro uh, slavery. They were pro uh, 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 human uh, uh, export. Yes, uh, sometimes it would have been like that the case, or sometimes it would just be, yeah, these these people were savages. These people uh, actually, we wanted to give them uh, an advancement. We wanted to give them knowledge. We wanted to take them out of their dark ages, you know, because we are living in the Enlightenment period, so called. So we wanted to bring that to them and this is not happening and they're not having having it and therefore we have to sort of force them because this is the burden of the white man right because you know quote mm -hmm. unquote the, the white man's burden right and so mm -hmm. this type of thing happened consistently and i from my personal experience of what i read and studied majority of the people that actually said no to that and were not having was people of the islamic background and islamic identity as well as uh, specifically the scholarship and the ulama they said no to that and a lot of the times they either dedicated halakats of debate they dedicated to refutations they dedicated to up, uh, uprising jihad as well as uh, uh, freedom, and and mm -hmm. and and that's what we kept seeing consistently throughout uh, African continent. When you start from all the way West Africa, through the Maghrib, through Sudan, uh, uh, or Northeast Africa, as well as East Africa. So it is mm -hmm. it is it is a major thing that in that century or two that this has happened consistently, starting from eighteen eighteen something all the way to 1919-something, that consistently the people that actually fought the uh, colonial power tend to be uh, people who actually uh, wanted liberation through uh, their Islamic identity. SubhanAllah, that's really true. And I think you mentioned to him before the example, one specific example of the Mad Mullah. Maybe you can uh, yeah. share that story now. Yeah, sure. Uh, so the, uh, we talked about the Mad Mullah in various uh, cases and occasions. Uh, the Mad Mullah, uh, or uh, that this is an, a name that uh, the English have uh, quote unquote, quote unquote, yeah, they've dubbed for him. And the Mullah, obviously, you can, uh, from this Persian uh, background, that is someone who is well uh, well versed in Allah or the Deen, right? An alim, uh, uh, scholarly background. And so this this person, they've um, uh, what they've done is to say that, uh, and th they did this in 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 Indo-Pak world, for example, where a lot of the ulama, when the English were there, uh, with you know, with this uh, modern-day Pakistan, modern-day uh, Gujarat, and all these type of areas, when the ulama weren't having their rules and regulations and all these things, and it would. Uh, sort of write refutations or they will write uh, letters to the uh, to them and say this is not possible you can't do this this we're not accepting this they would consider them, these people as mad because look at our power look at what we have so you must be mad and so these are things that in the literature they used to have and used to call the muslims of that part of the world when they were um, uh, maintaining that part uh, as the mullahs right and mm -hmm. uh, some of these scholars uh, and uh, soldiers slash scholars uh, who actually were maneuvered and moved around in the world, in the Muslim world, came and uh, and did their missions or did their um, uh, military, uh, um, how do you say, their military um, 
uh, uh, yeah, the military basically run or period of time that they were uh, serving their military. They came to modern day Somaliland and, and the Somali Peninsula, and they made sure that every time that they saw these people, these Muslims that were not on the program, that they would just describe them more. So Muhammad, uh, Muhammad ibn Abdullah, uh, Muhammad, uh, uh, Sayyid Muhammad Abdullah Hassan was one of those famous figures who came from uh, the Hijaz at the time, finished his learning, he was traveling in sometime 1880s, 18, uh, 1850s, 1860s, and he came to back to his country. And when he came in uh, and he started his own uh, halaqa and his madrasa and teaching uh, circles, and he didn't want to follow the program, the British program of, of, of their of their colonial powers and, and, and putting up orphanages here and there and all these things. When he was not on that program and he wrote to them a letter saying, no, we're not having that with Muslims. You cannot do that. We will not accept you. The, and immediately, the first thing that they've done is, okay, this person is mad. He's not sane. There's a Somali saying that goes that when he landed on, on in, in modern day Barbara, which is a coastal uh, town, uh, and he came, <laughs> the, 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 there was a, 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 a tradition of paying, um, what, is, uh, what do you call a, a, a custom clearance or paying fees to come off the boat and, and, you know, that type of thing. And so they asked them to pay the tax of entering the country under the British. And there was a British officer sitting there, right? And he's like, okay, you owe this much to, to come into the country. And he said, who, asked, who took your payment? He asked them. Right, and this is a Somali thing. Like, okay, who took your payment? Can I ask you? When you came to my country, who took your payment? You know, mm. who did you pay it to? And this guy looked at him and was like, "What is he saying?" And so the translator said, "No, this is a uh, he's a mullah who's a bit mad, you know." And so that is an, another narrative. But from the uh, colonial archives, what we know, the first air time that this name is sort of given to him proper by the colonial scholars or officers is because when he said no to them and he wrote a letter to them and saying listen we're not having some of your regulations so these people actually early on started this so you had the uh, the, the those people who were actually fighting uh, freedom movement against the italians who were the colonial power at the time there were uh, the french who were the colonial power in the time which is modern day djibouti uh, then the, you had the uh, the brits who were majority of what is we know today as somaliland as well as Puntland, the whole area these are the areas that they controlled, right? And so all these people and their power, the people that rose up against and fought them, all were from Islamic background. So none of the people that were local actually said, you know what, uh, because I'm a black person, uh, I wanna um, uh, do, a f uh, I wanna fight you for uh, uh, my freedom. Uh, I'm a secular person, I'm, uh, I'm not coming from, any Islamic, um, how do you say, any Islamic uh, call to say, uh, quote unquote, jihad, or any uh, any other thing, but actually to say freedom movement, I'm gonna fight you. It has nothing to do with my Islamic identity. I'm not calling towards Islam or whatever. I'm gonna fight. We don't have any of that. We have that yes. introduced into 1950s when modern political uh, movement and political groups start forming to fight mm, the independence. I see. Yeah. Mm. Which was more along the line of, yeah, okay, let's, let's use, um, let's use uh, a non-violent method to fight for our independence, right? 
But the people who said enough is enough were the scholars, the ulama. You know, they they were the ones that actually carried the banner of uh, um, fighting oppression and anti-colonialism. And we have the Bahdera Jama'a, the, the Jama'a that is known as the Bahdera Jama'a. They were a group of people that uh, at one point count, counted 10,000 Tulaabul Ilm with their mm. family and infrastructure and had a milita military infrastructure, right? They had their oh. own economy. And they said no to the Italians and they fought them for a period of time. You had mm. uh, the group that was known as the Gosha and they were, uh, some of them were free, ex-free slaves. Some of them were actually fighting slavery. Some of them were actually fighting uh, the colonials, and they were known as the uh, uh, anti-colonials, and they, they actually fought them, right? And even those people who were coming from that background, they fought them with the principle of coming from Islamic uh, 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 identity. And so, yeah, we, we have a rich heritage and, 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 and culture. And you look at the same thing with Algeria. You look at the same thing with Tunisia. You look at the same thing with... Um, uh, the Maghrib, you look at the same thing with Sudan, you know, the Mahdi of the Sudan that they call the Mahdi of the Sudan, you know it, all these people were ulama uh, who were fed up with the status quo and said enough is enough, uh, we cannot have these people polluting our tradition and Islam coming to teach their version of Islam, their version of Islamic history, translating our works and then reintroducing that with their Orientalism, version of Orientalism to us mm. and then saying this is the deen, you know, because Shafi'i Fiqh at the end of the day, one of the first translations we have on, on the Minhaj al-Talibin comes from the Indian, uh, um, uh, what is it called, the Indian officers that were the British, the British officers that were stationed in India. You know, the first Minhaj, uh, Minhaj, uh, Minhaj al-Talibin. That, that must have been in Malabar in South. In the south. Yeah, yeah. And, and all of that is based on them needing to understand, right? How, what are these guys doing? <laughs> yeah, what, and how, mm. how we function in terms of the Qadishit, right? And so mm. a lot of that come, came from there, subhanAllah. Yeah, yeah. Mm. SubhanAllah. Yeah. That's, that's, that's really interesting. And uh, in the interest of time, um, I think it's good if we can wrap up the discussion. Is there any other points you thought were worth mentioning on, on this subject, Sad Muhammad? To be honest, uh, I think we we covered a lot of ground, uh, yeah. subhanAllah. Uh, one of the things that I would uh, like to emphasize is that uh, I love history, I love history generally, specifically Islamic history, that uh, with the emphasis focus on the history of Northeast Africa or Abdul Habsha or East Africa proper. And the reason I do that is because it's not much explored, there's no... Mm. Uh, uh, the uh, majority of scholars that produce uh, literature around the academic literature I'm referring to are uh, people who are non-Muslims, unfortunately. Uh, about 90% of the scholars, I, I would say, that have written about this field tend to be non-Muslims. Very few Muslims uh, that have written about it, like, uh, for example, there is a, a Dr. Hassan, the late uh, Dr. Hassan who passed away, Ahmed, and then there is Muhammad uh, Hassan who is uh, both of who are from uh, modern-day Ethiopia. You have many other scholars also who focus on this field and written about it, but they come from their uh, locality. But they're not necessarily from Islamic discipline. They don't come from a traditionally uh, trained Islamic uh, background, you know? And so it's sometimes lacking in terms of the way they are, uh, bring their arguments and the, 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 the resources. And the scholars that actually come from the Islamic training and Islamic background, tend to write in Arabic. So there are a few Arabic works that are out there, whether they would be thesis in, in, in 
and sometimes produced in Sudan, in Qahira, and other places of the Muslim world that focus on that part of the world. Unfortunately, there's nothing coherent. There's nothing that is uh, uh, sort of uh, uh, properly done that is from the mainstream English, for example, mm. that comes mm. from people who are well uh, firm in these fields, right? And so what I would actually uh, want to go away with here is a request uh, and call to um, uh, how do you say another form of jihad as it were <laughs> for <laughs> students of uh, discipline of students of ilm, tulab al-ilm, uh, and scholars whether they will be senior and junior to focus on their thesis to their studies if you if they're part of that world to produce an article or two to produce an a writing or two or a book or two a mabhaz and research on these areas and so that the majority of the, so that those people who are coming to the scene uh, do not feel they have to come to a, a, a place that is somewhat tainted by non-islamic thought right non-muslim thought but also from a muslim thought that uses expression and tools that come from non-muslim thought so mm. subhanallah that is very uh, problematic and it really influences the way we think the way we argue the way we right. write the way we pass literature uh, mm. and i I've, i'm i'm guilty of myself because i'm working on as i said and um, uh, translations of a couple of translations of these classical texts that talk mm. about the history and the spread of islam in the uh, uh, peninsula as well as the effect and so because i'm reading a lot of non-muslim uh, uh, literature talking about the Muslim experience of that part of the world, right? It sort of influences the view. Exactly, influences the way I think. So I'm always like, you know, and then I end up going back to Orientalism of Saeed Edwards and like, okay, reorient, reorient, you know. Those so, are the, the coffee beans, you know, when you're in a, in a perfume shop and you're, the, exactly. the, the perfumes get mixed up, you need the coffee beans to put you on reset. I think. No, uh, that, is, that is, and so. Uh, it is it's very, it's very problematic in, in terms of the way we produce and, and the, the way we argue and the way we uh, refine our knowledge. So, subhanAllah, we, um, th that is my basic uh, request. That's my basic, um, uh, because subhanAllah, you know, I can, I can pass away tomorrow. I can uh, pass along something that I am doing. But what I would love uh, to see in this world and in the Akhirah is that uh, people of um, uh, from this part of the world with a similar conviction actually produce and study and and, and pass on similar ilm and knowledge right I'm, I'm lacking so i'm not i'm not one of those i'm lacking i know where i'm lacking so um, but i would request that people who are equipped with that uh, who are studying who are in universities who are doing research who are doing their thesis and specifically i'm doing history Mm -hmm. Come on, do do us and yourself a favor and write a maqal here and there and an article here and there and do a bit of research. That is my my request and, and plea. It's a, it's a call for papers almost, but it's a well-placed one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Jazakumullah yeah. khair, for your time and for sharing all your knowledge with us. Uh, for those who are listening, whether you're listening on audio on Spotify or you're, or, or you're watching the, the original YouTube video, feel free to follow uh, Roots Academy uh, on Facebook and Instagram, Roots Academy UK, for more conversations around topics that are relevant to uh, you know Muslims uh, in the modern day and age. And also looking back at history is also important to the modern day and age. If you don't know your history, then you are bound to repeat it again. Jazakumullah khair once more to our esteemed guest. And inshallah, we'll see you all again soon. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi.
بركاته